0: Blog Talk Radio <laughs>
1: Convincing, this show that looks at controversial criminal cases from the perspective of the courts and not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where who dat is not a question and where yet doesn't mean what you think it does. And Michael Cornahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, home of the Cheese Dog and the Billy Bass Adoption Center. Thank you for joining us for Episode 2, State of Arkansas versus Liddell Lee. Of course, this is a live show, and questions are always welcome. So call us at 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. How are you doing tonight?
2: Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I wish the wind here in uh, North Low Rock would probably die down. I mean, good God, I almost got blown over. I don't know how many times going to vape at work today. I've seen
1: that in Kansas, too, in Kansas City.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's been here. insane. Yeah. Absolutely. I I almost thought last night uh, after I almost got knocked over, I almost thought last night maybe the CIA was after me after we blew the lid off the Clinton. Oh, you look, <laughs> you looked for those helicopters,
1: huh?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I was waiting for the men in black suits to come and abduct me and my roommate. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, no, you won't hear them coming, unfortunately. Do I now? You won't hear them coming.
2: Exactly. They'll be like a thief in the night, so to speak, to steal a term from the Bible. Correct. Correct. Oh. Well, Lisa, we got an interesting topic here tonight, you know, talking about Arkansas versus Liddell Lee, especially here in the great state of Arkansas. Uh, you know, the, this was very controversial on many fronts. And before we actually get in the case, I wanna—I uh, know it made national news and stuff. But before we actually get in the case, I do kind of want to talk to you and get your opinions on the story from the last, you know, year where the governor Asa Hutchinson signed into effect—I uh, believe it was eight death warrants, and eight people were scheduled to be placed to death within, I believe it was a ten-day period. Uh, made a lot of controversial statements. You know, a lot of people said it was like a disassembly line and things like that. What did you think about that when you heard about that? Did it, you know, color your opinion of the state of Arkansas or Governor Hutchinson by any stretch Mm -hmm. of the imagination?
1: No, because, again, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to try and put it into a little bit of context. The state had had a problem with their protocol, so they had to rework the protocol. That meant that there were people who had completed all of their state and federal review process, who were eligible to have their executions carried out, but who couldn't be executed because of the problem and reworking the protocol. Now, I think 2005 or 2006 that that started.
2: Excuse me if I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. I don't see it in our uh, show notes here, but I kind of do want to jump at, to the end here and talk about the execution. Now, was Liddell the one that uh, was actually executed and they thought it may have been botched?
1: No. Uh, the, uh, his execution was...
2: I, I know it was definitely rushed.
1: rushed. Well... The drugs were administered at eleven forty four and right. he was pronounced at eleven fifty six. That's twelve minutes.
2: Okay. Okay. Now uh, not, a-
1: and no one observed him struggling, moving, having any problem breathing. They do they do consciousness tests where they literally lift your eyelid and put a finger on the eyeball. Mhm. And only if you are totally unconscious Will you not make some movement or flinch or have a reaction
2: to that? Right. That's kind of like people who stick contacts in. I don't understand because I'm too shaky with my fingers. I, I poke my eyeball out. But uh, I, I can't
1: even put on mascara <laughs>
2: because I
1: jerk, my head jerks too much. I look like a raccoon.
2: It, it would definitely so, give me the heebie-jeebies, but another thing before we actually get into the uh, trial, uh, I wanted to ask about as far as execution procedures, Since that we are talking about, one where somebody was placed to death, is the procedure you have to have the drugs administered by midnight, or does the uh, person have to be declared dead by midnight?
1: I. Uh, You know, that I'm not really sure. I've never looked at that aspect. I believe, though, that the warrant would expire at midnight. So if you have not uh, begun the procedure at midnight, the warrant would expire, and then there's a process that you have to go through to get a new warrant.
2: Right. Cuz I remember no they were talking
1: processes and things like that.
2: I was about to say I remember them talking about how they would have to go basically through a whole another set of uh, not sentencing but they'd have to go through a whole another set of procedures where the family Correct. would have to come back in and so on and so forth and they were talking about how you know that was really something that not only the state didn't want to happen but obviously the family wanted it to just be over with.
1: Correct. That is correct. They, I don't know that the family would necessarily have to, uh, have to be involved, but the state would have to request a new date. Uh, the warrant would have to be issued by, I can't remember in Arkansas, whether it's the judge or whether it's the governor himself. They have to okay. give notice of that to the, to the person about to be executed, and a certain time has to pass. Prior to the to the execution taking place.
2: Okay, okay. And well, Lisa, so I th- do I know? That's
1: you know, like I said, they had several people that had been waiting since two thousand five,
2: who had yeah, completed
1: most of their post conviction appeals.
2: I don't believe no anybody appeals. was. I don't believe anybody was executed under Democratic Governor Mike Beebe. So, yeah, that makes sense about that time because I think Huckabee was the last one to uh, put somebody to death.
1: Right. But, again, I think Beebe was, Beebe was the governor during that period of time when they were trying to rework the whole protocol.
0: Right, because right. Because there had
1: been some issue in 2004 or 2005. Their last execution, I believe, was 2005.
2: I believe so, yeah
1: so uh twenty seventeen it was twelve years mhm Bef- you know between that execution and the first one yeah so um i you know, I don't know that. It, it, it's a shocking thing probably to a lot of people, especially those who uh, oppose the death penalty. But I, I just think it was a, a an attempt to give the families of all these victims some closure finally.
2: Absolutely, and I believe that's what the governor said in a statement after mm-hmm. Lee was executed. He said, you know, finally the family has closure, which is – what it's all about when it comes down to this, it's not, hey, we're going to kill this guy because we want to kill him. It's, you know, it, it right. is the ultimate sentence, so to speak. It's the ultimate sentence for the ultimate crime.
1: I know the opponents have, uh, have given it some evil meaning or, or something like that, but I really don't think it was evil or malicious. It was just, you know, doing business.
2: Right. Administering right.
1: justice, which is – his job as governor of the state of Arkansas.
2: Absolutely. That's what one of his duties as governor to do, you know, carry out execution. But Lisa, I guess we're ready. If you are, let's go ahead and start talking about Liddell Lee. And let's take us back to 1993. Let's first talk about the victim. Okay. Uh, the victim was
1: 26 year old Deborah Reese. She was a newlywed. She'd been married about seven months. She had a seven year old son. Uh, this was, a, I believe, a Tuesday, so he was in school that day. Deborah spent every day, at least during the week, with her mother, who was a truck driver. Her son was in school. They would always spend the day together. And on the morning of February 9, 1993, Deborah spoke to her mother to, on the phone at about 10.50 p.m. Uh, a.m. She was scheduled to be at her mom's house. She called her to let her know that she was going to finish curling her hair, and then she'd be on her way. During that phone call, Deborah told her mother that a man had knocked on the door, asked if her husband was home, and then asked to borrow tools. Uh, Deborah told the man she didn't have tools, he left, and then she spoke to her mother. So this, a call occurred right before she spoke to her mom at 10.50. Uh, Deborah told her mother that she was afraid and that she did not trust this guy.
2: Had Deborah known Uh, this guy, had Deborah known Mr. Lee before this? Like, was there any reason why she should have been afraid? Obviously, besides the fact that she was about to be murdered.
1: I think it was the circumstances of him asking if her husband was home, asking Mm -hmm. for tools. Um, He was a crack or cocaine user, and so he probably had some mannerisms that were worrisome. Um, Earlier that morning, a neighbor of Miss Reese's, sometime between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m., had a man knock on his door, ask for tools. He gave him tools. I don't know what they're called because I don't know names except screwdrivers and hammers. And mm-hmm. then the man left and those, whatever it was, was never recovered. Um, but that corroborates what Deborah told her mother. Because the neighbor describes a tall black male. Okay. that fits Liddell Lee. The deputy was six feet tall, very thin, and a black male.
0: Yeah, he so, was very thin.
1: Uh, mhm. And it says six feet tall, but the pictures I've seen, he appears to be one of those people that looks taller than he is.
2: I was about to say he looks a lot taller than six feet. Mhm. I
1: I did not find anything official. ADC does not no longer has a page for him, but um, everything I found said six feet. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she, like I said, she got off the phone with her mom, and presumably was going back to finish curling her hair. Um, her neighbor across the street, a gentleman by the name of Gomez, was looking out his front window, and it was sometime around 11 o'clock, and he observed a man talking to a woman. Wait. He observed a man pull the screen door open and kind of rush into the house. He observed the man coming out 20 minutes later, and the way the man was acting, looking around to see if he's being watched, uh, Mr. Gomez decided to get in his car and follow the man because that was suspicious to him. Right. And so Gomez was able to follow the man. Uh, I think when he first got into his car, there was a couple minutes where he didn't have him in sight, but he was able to find him. And again, remember, Lee is very tall. Lee is very thin. Um, He had seen what the man was wearing when the man went into the house. So it's not going to be difficult for him to lose sight of him for a minute and find him again. Right. And Mr. Gomez followed the man and observed him talking to a woman around the corner with braids or spirals in her hair on a nearby street. And that neighbor was uh, a lady by the name of Pruitt. She knew Lee. She called him Skip. Okay. And um, so we have Mr. McCullough, who had the encounter with the man asking for tools. Deborah reported this to her mother, the man knocking on the door, asking about her husband, and then asking for tools. And then we have Mr. Gomez, who saw this man enter the house, the Reese house, and come out 20 minutes later. Now, Deborah's father had gotten a vacation check from his employer he probably works for a company that, if you don't use vacation, they pay you for it. And he had cashed that check and gotten sequential hundred dollar bills at uh, a credit union. And mm-hmm. so he had given three of those bills to Deborah, and they were in her purse. Okay. Uh, Deborah's body was discovered at one thirty eight p.m. At 1.53, Lee was in Rena Center and he paid a debt he had to Rena Center. Okay. Police were able to, I don't know if they caught him at Rena Center. I know he was arrested shortly after Rena Center, but I don't know what the circumstances were. Um, but police were able to get back to Rena Center. They had the records proving that Lee paid a bill and they. Uh, got the $100 bills that Renaissance took in that day and one of those bills was within the sequence of bills that Deborah's boss still had. Mm -hmm. So, I know there are allegations that the cops planted the bill and things like that, but it was pretty clearly established at trial that $100 $100 bill from Deborah's purse ended
2: up at Renaissance. And Laura right, Lee was brought it in. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, one of the things I want to ask you about when it is regarding this, I mean, well, the chain of command is kind of, kind of looking at the chain of command of the bill there. Um, how did it? unless it was from Liddell Lease. You know, is there any video uh, evidence that Liddell was the one who gave them the $100 bill? I think kind of circumstantial, I guess you could call it.
1: Wait, Michael, I'm sorry. Your whole thing broke up.
2: Okay, I apologize. Is that I've, better, Lisa?
1: I've, yeah, that's, that's better.
2: Okay. What I was asking was I, you know, playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, because this is something, you know, that the family has alleged is that the uh, bills were not uh, from Liddell. Is there any video evidence showing Liddell in or because, you know, most uh, most retail places nowadays have video surveillance. Is there any video or anything past this, quote unquote, circumstantial evidence?
1: As I understand it, this was in 1993. Uh, video surveillance technology was not what it is today. Rena center may not have had any video surveillance cameras. A lot of businesses, even in this day and age, still have dummy cameras that don't work or don't record. So no, Abs. there was no video evidence that showed Liddell Lee, but the records from Rent-A-Center showed it was his account that the payment was made on. Okay, okay. And I'm not because the because the circumstances of his arrest aren't really reported. I don't know if the police found him coming out of Rent-A-Center that day. Right. It, but that's what could have happened. Is he was at Rena Center when they found him I mean they could have had Mr. Gomez driving around looking to see if he saw the man he saw.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that they found Liddell Lee at Rena Center. Um, I don't know how that was, was made and one of the problems that I have because my source is court records is that at mm-hmm. his in his direct appeal He did not challenge any of the evidence against him. He didn't challenge its uh, sufficiency, and he didn't challenge the circumstantial nature of it. So the appellate opinions don't recount piece by piece and thread by thread how that evidence would tie him to the murder.
2: Right, right. And let's talk about the murder here, Uh, Lisa. Let's you know, focus in on that right now, if you will. What exactly happened to Miss Reese on February 9th, 1993?
1: She was strangled and beaten tire thumper, which is a bat-like tool that's used by truckers to check the tire pressure of their trucks. Pardon me. And so it's it's a wooden, it's a little bit smaller than a bat, Uh, A little bit thicker than a billy club. Kind of like if a bat and a billy club got together and had a baby, it would be a tire thumper. Mm -hmm. Um, And her husband had given it to her for protection. This is only my speculation, but I think that at some point she had the tire thumper and either took a swing at Lee or struck him.
0: Okay. And that
1: is why he ended up hitting her the way he did with the tire stumper. She was very badly beaten in the head. I mean Yeah,
2: uh, it was definitely a brutal without, crime. Without,
1: without being graphic. Uh it was very brutal. And Absolutely. Um, one of the allegations about uh the bloody scene, a crime scene picture showed her head covered with a towel. And the majority of the blood on the pillow underneath her head. So I don't know that it was as bloody as people expect it to be. The towel was over her head while he was beating her at, su- at whatever point. That would contain the blood from getting on him. So, okay, you know, he, so that's. He would have. He would have microscopic, small cast-off drops that weren't mm-hmm. visible to the human eye, but he would not have—he wouldn't be covered and drenched in blood, the way they okay, some so people expect. That,
2: the police didn't place the towel over her head. Mister Lee did.
1: Correct. Her, when her body was found, there was a towel over her head.
2: Okay. Okay. And I was about to ask why he would do that, but now it makes sense. You know, you don't want to get blood on you, DNA evidence, so on and so forth. And speaking of DNA evidence, we kind of, you know, our next bullet point here is the witnesses and evidence. Uh, That is one thing I want to ask you about as far as that goes. Is there any DNA evidence that links Mr. Lee? I know 93, once again, just like at the same time, I believe, or a little bit later in the year, the West Memphis Three situation happened in I'm pretty sure DNA was still new at this point. What uh, What do you know as far as that goes? Was there any DNA used in this trial or anything like that?
1: No. the the drops of blood on the uh, – there were some drops of blood on Lee's Converse shoes, but they were very, very small. And in 1993, they weren't of a sufficient quantity for either – HLA DQ alpha or RFLP testing.
0: Right. Have they been tested and since?
1: No. Um, Lee did file requests for DNA testing in 2017, three mm-hmm. days before his execution. Uh, but he um, unfortunately filed those requests years earlier. He could have filed a request in 2009. He could have filed a request during 2005, 2006 while his second state uh, rule 37 was pending. Um, The law, the the law in Arkansas, because that's when Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly filed their DNA request. Right. In 2001, 2004, uh, 2004 is when they got the, Agreed order to test limited now, items.
2: Now, it's safe to assume, I believe Arkansas only has one death row, so Liddell Lee and Damian Eccles were on the same, were sharing the same, you know, quarters at some point. Wouldn't you think that Damien would say something about that and Liddell would be like, hey, maybe I need to get this blood on my shoes checked out?
1: Well, you know, I don't know, and it's kind of funny because an article, not funny, it's kind of peculiar. An article I read uh, that interviewed someone from the Innocence Project
0: said mm-hmm. that,
1: well, poor Liddell Lee, none of his attorneys knew about DNA. And I kind of wonder, well, what rock were his attorneys living under? Right. Because it's it's been all over the news since 2000, at least the year 2000.
0: And right, you it's look been
1: head of every major – yeah, It's I, been at I think the head of every major case since
2: God knows when.
1: Yeah, you're breaking up again. I'm sorry.
2: I apologize. I said it's <laughs> been at the head of every major case since, I mean, even parts of it were at the head when it was still brand new of OJ. You know, they talked about that in OJ. So, I mean, it, DNA... Everybody knows the O.J. trial and followed it, so I mean to say that right. that does strike me kind of as peculiar. As peculiar, you get peculiar. the point out from Arkansas.
1: <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the the drops of blood they were able to confirm that it was human, and okay. those tests consumed all of the blood that was available. Oh,
2: okay. So then what if so those that's tests how consumed little
1: blood there was.
2: If those tests there was consumed all the blood, how what would he have been wanting to test if there was no blood left?
1: Well no, the 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 test on the the blood test on the shoes confirming the human blood was done at the crime lab. Okay. The Arkansas State Crime Lab.
2: Okay. And you and, said it consumed all the blood, correct? Like there was correct. no blood left? That,
1: there was nothing there was, there was nothing left that was capable at that time of being tested mhm the methods that they have today they could probably recover something and amplify it and get some kind of profile but the methods that were available we have to something people tend to forget is We have to look at what that time was, what was available. So you can't say, oh, every business has has video cameras and records every second of every day. That's not how they did it in 1993. And that's one of the reasons I want to do this show is to remind people that you can't hold things to the standards of today. And criticize them because they're not doing things the way we do them today.
2: Right, right. I can I can definitely understand right. that as as far as all that goes. I can definitely understand why you know you can't. I, I knew technology wasn't what it was today, but I wasn't sure. You know, I was two and a half almost three years old whenever this murder actually occurred. So I definitely do not remember the crime by any stretch of the imagination. But so I definitely remember the technology available. But, yeah, I was just, you know, wondering if, you know, what the difference was between 2017 and 1993 when you said it was consumed. I didn't know if you meant that there was no blood left, period, and there was no testing that they could have done, because right. I was about it, to say, did blood appear out of thin air that they could test?
1: Well, no, the, the the request for DNA testing, and that's another problem, the request for DNA testing came so late that they didn't even have time to determine whether there was anything that could be tested on the shoot.
2: Okay, now, so that's why point, the state believes that it was just a stalling tactic.
1: You know, I'm. I, I hate to tell you this, Michael, but it was just a stalling tactic. Right. It was not. He had never, in court, raised actual innocence. If he had raised actual innocence in his federal habeas claims, it, it might have helped him. If he'd raised actual innocence in his state Rule 37 claims, it might have helped him. But that didn't happen. Now, uh, Ladel Lee's family and and advocates blame it on his attorneys. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, attorneys can only do so much.
2: Absolutely. Now, did he pay for his attorney, or was it a court appointed? No, official?
1: they were they were court appointed, and they were paid for by the state because okay, he was. Okay, so in, you can
2: obviously. You can obviously, just like, you know, people claim with Damien, uh, Jason, and uh, Miss Kelly, you you know, I'm more surprised that they don't claim that these guys were just overworked instead of saying that they were inept. I think you would probably um, get uh, further with that than with saying that they were inept.
1: Well, Cause I believe
2: that's what the family claims is that at least the first one was, uh, quote unquote, inept.
1: Well, I don't. I I don't think the family's uh, esti- uh opinion is is that accurate. Um, right. First of all, there was no actual conflict of interest between Liddell Lee and any of his attorneys. Okay. Uh, the attorneys that were representing him in the Reese case, who were court appointed were trying to save his life. Right. But he was one of those clients and I've seen them in my career. They think they know everything, they think they know better and they don't think that they have to listen to anyone but themselves. Right. And that everyone has to do what they say. And that is just simply not the case.
2: Absolutely. yeah. I mean, I definitely don't like smug people and definitely sounds like the attorney was a little bit smug by the way you described no, it. No, that, that?
1: that's the thing, Michael. What? Michael, it wasn't, it wasn't the attorney who was smug. It was Liddell Lee. He oh,
2: was trying was to Liddell. control
1: the attorneys. He was trying to tell the attorneys what to do and how to do it. And if they right. told him, well, that's not a good idea, we really shouldn't do this he would say there was a conflict and he would stop communicating with them all of the problems with Liddell Lee's attorneys at least as far as the murder trial and the penalty phase were
0: Mm -hmm. problems
1: created by Liddell Lee okay not problems created by the attorneys
2: and that definitely sheds a new light as far as that goes you know uh uh, you know, uh, he, definitely, if he ca- is causing all these tru- troubles and what have you, you know, uh, you can go one or two ways with it. There's no in the middle. He's either making mm-hmm. himself look extremely bad, or you know, making himself look like a sympathy case, which I'm sure you yeah. know that's what the family likes to take the the narrative. That's, but let's talk about the what
1: that is exactly. They're trying to make Liddell Lee look like the victim when. The problems were ones of Liddell Lee's own making. If he had listened to the advice of his attorneys, he might not have gotten a death sentence. Because you remember, the first problem was uh, a psych evaluation was ordered. Right. And that created the first problem, according to the Liddell Lee narrative. The attorneys ordered that to try to save his life. identifying an intellectual disability, a mental disability, a mental illness, would have served as a mitigator in the penalty phase of the trial.
2: Yeah, I mean that – it would have definitely taken the death penalty off the the, uh, table.
1: Well, it might have led to the jury having – basically saying that the mitigating factors outweighed the aggravating ones. Right, And uh, another thing I want to clear up real quick, appointing an attorney to represent an accused prior to the conclusion of the guilt and innocence phase of the trial is in no way, shape, or form improper. Okay. When the death penalty is being sought, there are going to be two phases, the guilt and innocence phase and then the penalty phase. The attorney representing or attorneys representing the accused have to prepare for both phases at the same time Mm -hmm. because the penalty phase is not something that you get a conviction and the judge says, okay, we'll see everybody back here in six months for the penalty phase.
2: Right. Isn't it like immediate?
1: Yeah, the penalty phase can begin the next day.
2: Yeah, that's what I meant by immediate. Isn't it like, hey, okay, we um, it, know he's guilty. We'll be back tomorrow?
1: And, right. And so, you know, to imply that the appointment of Gerald Adams, which was a compromise with Mr. Lee to get him to be okay with the attorneys that he had and having someone he said he trusted to represent him in the penalty phase which is when the, the three rapes would be used. Um, and Liddell Lee went into court and said, yes, I'm happy with this. This is good. I'll, yes, this is what I want. And then the day of trial, he said, oh, know. I, I, I have a conflict. I, I don't want these attorneys anymore. They lied to me. They didn't tell me anything. And so, again, there you have Liddell Lee creating a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see how that would be a problem. Like you said, Uh you know, at this point, if I'm a judge, I'm just completely exhausted and thinking, you know, what's next from this guy? This guy's been nothing but trouble since we started this.
1: Uh, No, and, you know, I I have to give Judge Piazza credit. He really did not do that. Um, He was extraordinarily patient with Mr. Lee. And he did try to uh, accommodate him as much as he could, but another thing you have to remember is that sometimes getting rid of an attorney is a good Mm -hmm. delaying tactic.
2: Okay. Because
1: whoever replaces that attorney is going to need time. Right. And having read Mr. Lee's handwritten letters and pro se motions, Mm -hmm. I am firmly convinced that Liddell Lee was trying to gain time to control the process, to control the proceedings, and to delay as much and as long as he could.
2: Yeah, and that's definitely not acceptable, especially when you're the accused. You. (laughs) Can't exactly Correct. decide, you know, if you murdered somebody, you can't exactly decide how everything's gonna go down. You're you're the one that's on trial here, buddy. <laughs> the only thing Correct. you're entitled you're to the is a trial by your peers.
1: Right. And you are you're the one on trial and you do have a lot at stake, but uh like I said, you can't control the proceedings and you know, in none of the things that I read did Liddell Lee ever articulate an actual conflict with Simpson and Qualls or Adam, who were his uh, attorneys for the trial phase or phases. Mm-hmm. They didn't, none of them had ever represented Deborah Reese. They'd never represented any prosecution witnesses. They had never represented any members of Miss Reese's family. And there was never anything that he, Identified that would lead them not to zealously represent him.
2: Right, right. And
1: they, did, they did try to do that, and, again, Lee refused to cooperate with them, pediment to that.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Lisa, one thing I want to, you know, we're kind of jumping around here. We're getting into the trial a little bit. Let's talk about the arrest. Was the arrest made in pretty short order? Was the arrest made on February ninth, as it seems, and that's my understanding. Is it seems like the way it's described, the murder happens, Liddell Lee is goes and pays his bill. It almost sounds like directly after the murder, and uh, then gets picked up. Uh, like was it that quick of a process? Like was he in jail on the night of February ninth?
1: Yes, he was arrested on the, uh, the most I can find is the afternoon of February 9th. I don't know what the circumstances were. Um, I I reached out to the attorney general's office Mm -hmm. and I tried to reach out to Holly Lodge, the prosecutor, Um, but they, in spite of the fact that his sentence has been carried out, they're just not in a position to be able to make any public statements.
2: Right, absolutely. I mean, it's still such a controversial thing. You know, anything that they say can could be taken out of context, absolutely. Correct. So Correct. the one thing that automatically pops up in my mind is that's a pretty quick turnaround for saying, hey, this person's the one that killed him for sure. Right. Uh, and- what led to that quick of a turnaround minus somebody saying, Hey, I saw that person kill him. This is his name, Liddell Lee, this is where he is. You know, that's the only circumstance I would think that would happen so quickly.
1: Right. You know, like I said earlier, I don't know if they uh if Andy Gomez saw them at Deborah Reese's house and went over and described the man he saw. Um, I think, you know, his family and Miss Robinson is right. Jacksonville police were familiar with him. Right. And so, if he, if Andy Gomez described him, then they may have known exactly who they were looking for. Okay. Um, and they may have, you know, taken Mr. Gomez and tracked Liddell Lee, Lee down, or they may have just been on the lookout for him and seen him at or around Renner Center.
2: Okay. Well, Lisa, we're about a quarter. Uh, about a quarter till the top of the hour when we take our halftime break, and that's when we come back. We'll do the we'll get into the trial phase. But one of the other things uh, I want you to take us through is the actual process. You know, we talked about the criminal process last week. So Liddell Lee is, unless I'm mistaken here, he's brought in on murder charges. Yes, capital murder. Okay. Capital murder charges, that's, you know, obviously in Arkansas, that's the top dog as far as murder goes. Um, One thing I've got to ask is, is there not a premeditation qualification in Arkansas for capital murder?
1: Um, You know, I, I, I did not. That's one of the things I did not do. I didn't read the Arkansas Statute. But a misconception a lot of people have about premeditation, they think that you have to be planning it for a day or a week or a month. Mm-hmm. They think you have to have a list of I'm going to do A, B, C, and D, when actually right. premeditation is taking up the tire thumper, hitting her once in the head, looking at it, and then hitting her 35 more times.
2: Okay, Okay. well, yeah, at, at any point you could have been like, hey, I'm probably going to kill her, I'm to stop.
1: Right, yeah. that idea, I need to stop and and instead choose to keep going, and that can okay. be premeditation. So he did not have to, premeditation doesn't mean specifically picked out Deborah Reese, he specifically picked out her house. He specifically decided he was going to steal $300 bills from her purse.
0: Mm -hmm. None
1: of that is, is, it has to be involved in premeditation. It can be a Mm -hmm. spur of the moment thing, but you have an opportunity, even if it's only a couple or three seconds, to consider your actions and what you're doing and the consequences and what could happen and not stop and say, okay, I'm not going to do this but to forge ahead. Okay. And there is, you know, there was evidence that she had been strangled. So he may have strangled her and render, rendered her unconscious. and then, so then picked he up could the tire beat her. her. And beat her with
2: it. Okay. Okay. Um. Uh, when he's arrested, Lisa, and he's brought in and booked, is there an interrogation in this case? Or is he automatically, you know, we don't need a we don't need a uh confession or anything. We just need this dude to get placed behind bars and this is it
1: um I don't believe that there was any type of confession. um This was not Lidell Lee's first time at the rodeo Mhm, and so I would bet that the only smart thing that he did do was when the police tried to talk to him, he invoked his right to counsel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And his right to remain silent.
2: Right. Well, and, Lisa, um,
1: because there's no statements or anything or any in, inclination indication that there was any kind of confession.
2: Okay. Well, Lisa, I'm going to give my opinion on what I think happened that day before we go to the top of the hour. And then maybe you can fill in some gaps. But basically, here's what I get out of as far as what happens February 9th, 1993. Obviously, Liddell goes up to her, asks her for the tools. She continues talking to her mom and everything. I believe at that point, for whatever reason, Lee comes back. Something caught Lee's eye. Lee comes back, and when he forces his way into the home, which is what I'm assuming happens because I'm sure, you know, her being terrified of him the first time, She's not gonna let him in the second time. Uh I believe she probably struck him with the blunt object like you were talking about. I believe you said it's I, I forget what she said the actual name of it is, but the tire tool. And right. uh that incensed him. I believe that incensed yeah. him to the point where he started choking her and once she was uh, once she was unable to fight back I believe that then at that point, you know, he's still so incensed with rage that he continues to for lack of a better term and excuse my language, but beat the shit out of her with it. And then once he's done, you know, obviously, you know, we talked about premeditation. Premeditation could even be taken and putting the towel over the head so the blood doesn't get on him. So, I I mean, that's yeah. the that's the picture I'm getting right now of what probably happened. Is that do you think that's pretty accurate or well how how that did you is, feel?
1: That that is very close to my speculation of what happened. Um, mm-hmm. I think that she and probably in nineteen ninety three, I think in that area, they maybe weren't as uh religious about locking their doors as we mm-hmm. are today. Right. And I think that she opened the screen door and realized mm-hmm. the door wasn't locked and walked on in the house. Okay. And, you know, I think she probably did try to defend herself, because another thing, he was a rapist, but she was not raped.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: So I think that she had to put up some level of resistance that enraged him so much that he went from uh, rapist to killer.
2: I was about to say, so do you think when, you know, I said something caught his eye that made him want to come back, do you think it was her? Do you think he came into the house intending to rape her?
1: It probably was.
2: Okay. Okay. And then whenever she, you know, probably tried to defend herself with, you know, maybe the tire tool, it, it just incensed him?
1: I think that's what I believe happened. Again, because she was not raped first. And right. the two prior murders that he was a suspect in, those women had been raped before they were killed.
2: So with all this being three, go ahead.
1: He had three other rapes on top of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So – and I completely lost my thought, my train of thought there. With all this being um, so said – Oh, you're fine. You're fine. With uh, all this being said, would there a, not be a temporary insanity plea? Maybe he could he could have tried to uh, tried to use because yeah, he was well, so incensed again, that it blinded him his, by he was blinded by rage. I guess would be the term.
1: I think that he thought in his mind that he was going to be discharged, and that he. When his attorneys asked for an evaluation, a mental evaluation or psychiatric uh, evaluation, he, that's when he first sort of started saying there was a conflict, because he didn't want to do a mental evaluation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so he would probably have been opposed to trying to use some kind of insanity defense. I mean, they could have, because of his history of rapes they could have said he had a sexual you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: obsession
2: okay that
1: drove him to do these things
2: now without getting too much into the trial like i said we're going to try to get into that the next hour without getting too much into it was there ever a uh was there ever a you know mental health evaluation on mr lee did that actually go through because I'm pretty sure, and once again, this is back in 93, so we can't really judge it, but I'm pretty sure, don't you have to have a mental health evaluation before you can be sentenced to death? No. Okay.
1: No. Um, There was a mental evaluation. Um, I don't think Lee was as cooperative as he could have been because it wasn't helpful for him. And there are some aspects that, really, that actually hurt him because when they tried to raise the claims that he was too mentally ill to be executed in 2017, those historic records kind of made it difficult for them to, to really prove that, that those records refuted that, those claims.
2: Right, right. And see, you right. know, you said he didn't think that it would help him. Wow. I mean, from what I understand, well, you know, and it'd probably be my first thought is, oh, I was insane. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't I know what I was thinking. You know what I'm saying? Because, yeah, at that point, you know, you can try to get the trial thrown out and you weren't fit to stay in trial, so to speak, or you right. know, get the penalty at least taken that, off the table.
1: That is again that's something they were they were trying to explore that as well um and it may have been because of his obstinate attitude and his uncooperative attitude that they thought maybe something was not quite right with him
2: right, and I believe but, actually whenever we talked with the uh with the family on a previous. Uh, on a previous show, they actually said something about you know him having some sort of mental health issue. Like I believe they said he was. I don't want to say mentally retarded, but I believe that they said he wasn't. You know, he wasn't completely up to par as far as IQ goes. I think is what they were insinuating. Well,
1: again, that was the that was the party line uh, to try to to get him uh, his sentence commuted to life. Okay. Um. Okay. But the evaluation in 1994, I believe it was, just didn't find any evidence of that. And you know, he he filed a lot of motions pro se. He wrote a lot of letters to judges, and he didn't have disorganized thought processes or or trouble of. Uh, Expressing himself, um, the words are are escaping me right now. Right. Now. right. Um, he he didn't seem delusional or or detached from reality. Right. Right. So, um, like I said, it, if he had cooperated. And if he had had some insight into his own laws, the mental evaluation might have helped him. But if he's not going to cooperate,
2: mm-hmm. and I believe
1: he told one of the evaluators, this is all a waste of my time. Wow. Then, you know, they're not going to be able to find anything. And he, he did make a good impression to them. hmm But he was opposed to it, and that was when he started saying he had a a conflict with Simpson, who was one of the attorneys. But Simpson and Brett Walls and um, Dale Adams, all three of them were trying to save his life, and all three of them were uh, providing him with a very jealous defense.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: There's a jacket with blood on it that they successfully had suppressed or excluded from the trial.
2: Oh wow. So yeah, I mean they and, were definitely it sounds like trying to do their job at least, and Liddell was getting in their way at every po- at every turn.
1: That, that that is exactly what it is. He was getting in their way.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, like I said, you know, as much as he wants to say, you know, it wasn't benefiting him, it sounds like they were trying to benefit him. And maybe he just thought that he should go home and this is a bunch of BS or something like he doesn't think he should be in this situation.
1: Correct. Well, I think that he was under the impression that. As his attorneys, they had to do what he said when he said how he said. Right. And that is not the case. That's not true. I know if Sean were here, bless his heart, he would argue that that is. But Mm -hmm. uh, attorneys have to use their professional judgment, their training, their experience, their education. Um, And if something a client wants to do is not in their best interest, they have to counsel the client against the action, not go along with it.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, especially like you said, if it's not in his best interest, they're going to be like, oh, buddy, you know, Uh and once again, you know, I'm never going to be in this situation. But let's say I were I'm probably going to be listening to the guy who went to law school for quite a few years. Then, you know, trusting my own judgment. Correct. Correct. I mean,
1: now, like I said, I mean, you have a right to, to be involved and informed. And to be involved to a degree that if you say, I, I want to ignore this and hope it goes away, your attorney is going to tell you, I know you'd like to do that, but you can't do that. If you ignore it, it's not going to go away, and you're going to end up getting a judgment against you Right. in that civil suit that your neighbor filed. So right, the course of action is to defend it, not to pretend it's not happening.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, y- you pretty much have to listen. That's why you have a lawyer; they're there to make sure that you uh, get fairly represented, so to speak. And they make sure that you know everything in the trial is fair to you, and uh, you know not only fair to you, but they make sure that
0: you know everything
2: is completely on the up and up, and that you don't, you know, get a hose job, so to speak. Even though what? you know, in, in a lot of cases. A lot of people think a lot of these court appointed attorneys are exactly that. They're co- court appointed so they tend to you know, favor the court, you know. In in theory at least, you know, we probably won't get people to agree that in practice it's that way, but in theory at least that person is not working for the court, they're working for you. They're just being paid Correct. by the court. Correct. You know and I,
1: something people go ahead. and I've seen this I've I've debated and discussed criminal cases for probably about 20 years now. Um, People think that you judge an attorney's performance and effectiveness based on the outcome. So if in your mind there's not enough evidence and there's reasonable doubt and the person was convicted, the attorneys must have been ineffective and they must have screwed it up. And that is simply not the case and that's one of the big things. The courts look at the performance of attorneys within the context of what was going on in the trial time.
0: Mhm. Right. And right. so they're
1: not judging they're not judging these attorneys with hindsight, which is what people are doing when they think the person shouldn't have been convicted and look at the attorneys and declare them ineffective because the person was convicted.
2: Well, and I mean to make a sports reference, you talk about, you know, hindsight and things like that. To make a sports reference, a lot of these things that go on in uh, courtrooms are what they call, you know, bang-bang plays in sports, you know. You've got to make a decision right then and there, and, you know, you don't have time to mull on it. You've got to make the decision right then and there. Correct. But, Lisa, we are at the hour mark. When we come back, we're going to get into the trial and the first trial, I should say, the hung jury trial. And then we're going to get into the second trial as well as, you know, the uh, appeals and everything that led up to the execution of Liddell Lee by the state of Arkansas. You're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back in just a moment. Are you looking for the best
0: deals for your vaping needs, then check out the guys at sub own Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at sub own Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. sub own Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
2: Back, ladies and gentlemen, here talking Arkansas versus Liddell Lee on Talk Radio 49 in the clear and convincing show. Want to remind you, every Monday night we have, or every other excuse me, Monday night, we have Behind the Curtain with Brad Hicks and our co-host, our beautiful co-host Lisa O'Brien, live from New Orleans, Louisiana, as they talk about the paranormal, about uh you know, conspiracy theories, things like that. As a matter of fact, last night We just talked with uh, Ken Roundsville and uh, Linda Ives about the boys on the track and the Mina connection uh, right here in Benton, Arkansas. A lot of of wealthy politicians and things involved in that. Uh, Definitely hope that we can bring Linda some closure as far as the terrible, terrible, brutal murder of her son back in 1987. But, Lisa, that's not what we're talking about here tonight. We're talking about the state of Arkansas versus Liddell Lee, and we're going to bring you right back on here, Lisa. Lisa, are you ready to talk about the trial of Liddell Lee?
1: Yes, and there were actually two trials, so let's get
2: started. Let's get started on the first one, so to speak. Now, the first trial obviously jury. So, let's go ahead and you know kind of summarize the first trial cuz obviously that's not the big one. What happened? Why was there a hung jury in this first trial? Why were they not able to make up their minds so to speak? Well, a
1: lady by the name of Bonita Witherspoon uh got onto the jury and she had a few things that would have disqualified her from jury service had mm-hmm. she disclosed them during jury selection. Okay. The biggest the biggest one was that she failed to disclose on the juror form a prior felony conviction. And in Arkansas, felons cannot serve on civil or criminal juries.
2: Okay. Okay, so that's what... Previous felony? Yes. Okay. She
1: she now, had uh she had an alias, Benita Will- Willis.
2: Okay, so that's how she got on the jury. Correct. Okay. Now I was about to say it sounds like somebody wasn't doing their daggum job and allowing a <laughs> uh yeah, I mean I'm assuming all these people go through background checks before they're allowed to serve on the jury, correct? Not criminal background. Not necessarily.
1: In this particular case, she had apparently ID under Benita Witherspoon, and was mm-hmm. probably registered to vote, and then ID under Benita Willis, and was disqualified from voting because of the felony conviction. Um,
2: okay, now, so her- Witherspoon I- was the
1: Witherspoon was the name she got for her jury summons. Okay. But she used the name Benita Willis, and that's the name that she got a felony conviction under. But that's by receiving. Far,
2: how, how far had they gone into the trial before this was discovered?
1: Uh, this was probably discovered after the trial. Now, one thing that you said, they don't necessarily do background checks on potential jurors. Jurors okay. in Arkansas are chosen by a a random number system from voter registration records. Okay. If you are registered to vote, it's presumed you're not a convicted felon.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. True. So there would
1: be no background check on that. Um, Now, had she been prosecuted by Holly Lodge and Holly Lodge recognized her, she might have caught it, but mm-hmm. there are multiple divisions in Pulaski County, and she you know different divisions of the prosecutor's office you know cases, so she had never crossed paths with holly Lodge or her right family. i'm assuming
2: I'm assuming Holly was saved for the big dogs, like capital correct. murder trials and things like that correct,
1: and what people also don't seem to understand is
2: when you have a
1: jury information sheet, you are supposed to fill that out and it asks you questions like, Do you have a felony conviction? And you're supposed to answer those truthfully. You sign a declaration that all the information is true and correct.
2: Now, was Bonita possibly, and this is just me spitballing, thinking about something she may have been charged with for this because it does seem like, you know, it not only is a nuisance to the court, but, you know, it seems like it may be something that could be. She was charged
1: and convicted with contempt of court. And that was not done by the judge. It was filed by the prosecutor. Uh, but there were there were several other problems. Um, she had independent outside knowledge of the case, which included a familiarity with Lee and numerous witnesses. But she didn't disclose that when she was questioned during jury selection by the court and by counsel. Okay. And she'd also been represented by attorney an attorney. Who was representing Lee by the name of Jared Sollings. and she didn't disclose that, and he didn't recognize her.
2: Okay, okay. So, so Lee. So did Lee not? Uh, did Lee recognize her to the point that Lee was like, "Oh yeah, I got one of my homegirls down there." On
1: the uh, you know, I I don't I can't say that, but I suspect that because. Other jurors observed her in close proximity to Lee's sister. Mm
0: -hmm. They observed
1: her talking to Lee's sister at one point. Um, She talked to uh, Mr. McCullough, one of the prosecution witnesses, and said, hey, how you doing?
2: Okay. Um,
1: So, I mean, what's kind of ironic is had she gone, laid low, and been quiet and convicted mm-hmm. him, he would have gotten a new trial. Okay. Because of the felony conviction. Because she was known to his family, and somebody after the trial, after he was convicted, could have said, wait, she's got a conviction. And then Lee would have been able to get a new trial. That she she instead of <laughs> instead of doing that, she disrupted the proceedings and she disrupted deliberations. Which is why she got the contempt of court
2: charge and
1: the conviction.
2: That, they literally did get all the way through the whole trial.
1: And all the way Correct. through
2: deliberation.
1: The they oh, went wow. through they went to deliberations and on the second day of deliberation, she read a statement that basically said she believed the justice system was biased and unfair, and she wasn't going to be a part of convicting Lee for capital murder. And then she turned her chair away from the jurors and read a book out loud, which disrupted deliberations, and they were unable
2: to reach charge. Her. Is that where she got uh, the charge for contempt? or did she get for literally
1: lying? well she was essentially she was uh she was convicted on the contempt of court charge based on the totality of her conduct i think the only thing they didn't convict her on was the failure to disclose the prior felony
2: right okay okay so question in the
1: You're breaking up again, Michael. I apologize. I think Michael's having some technical difficulties right now. Can you Uh, hear me? Yes, now I can hear you.
2: I guess I have the mic too close to my face. What I was going to ask, in this case, uh, was there a completely – new jury brought in for the second trial, seeing as how the first one had already seen everything? Yes.
1: they. What they did was uh when the mistrial was declared, the court set a new date of May 1995. Okay. Of course, L- Liddell Lee started the complaints about Simpson and Qualls. Um, apparently, during this time, there had been an offer of life in prison without the possibility of parole from the state. And Mr. Simpson and Mr. Qualls were trying to get Lee to accept that offer and plead guilty. And Mr. Lee did not want to do that. And in trying to convince Mr. Lee that that was the better course of action, Mr. Simpson did tell him, you would have gotten the death penalty with the first jury, but there was misconduct. And You will get the death penalty with the next trial, Um, and that was a harsh statement to make, but it doesn't evidence a conflict. Okay, right, right, absolutely. it It was an effort to try to get Liddell Lee to see that the better course of action for him would be to plead guilty and be sentenced to life in prison.
2: So it was basically, yeah, it was basically telling them, "Hey, buddy, the odds are stacked against us, you might right. want to take this right that, and you know based nothing... on the,
1: yeah, and based on the evidence there was um there was a hair found in the bedroom that was consistent with Lee's, and then there was a footprint in a size ten and a half converse shoe that was consistent with Lee's shoes. So the claims that there was no physical evidence tying him to the scene are not uh, not entirely accurate.
2: Right, right, absolutely. I mean, and I I see your point. So uh,
1: you need need a better mic, Michael. You're breaking you up again. It?
0: All right.
1: You were doing Lisa. so
0: well. Is are you
1: are you touching it? Michael? All right, well, I guess I'll talk to myself. Um, The problems that Lee had with Mr. Simpson started leading up to the second trial. Um, The judge did hold numerous hearings on Lee's claims, but he found no conflict of interest, and so he was not going to relieve Simpson and Qualls. A compromise was reached, and an an attorney, Dale Adams, was appointed to represent Lee in the penalty phase of the trial. And Lee agreed with that, and the process moved along toward uh, the trial, which had been reset for October to allow Mister. Adams time to prepare for the penalty phase. On the day of trial,
3: back.
1: Okay, great. I'm so glad because you were the one talking when your mic went out, and so I had no idea where to go.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what I was going to say was, I actually now I completely forget what I was going to say. <laughs> I know. What you were talking about.
1: <laughs> so, uh, again, the the Lee tried to renege on the agreement to have Simpson Qualls and Adams represent him, and the judge was not going to allow that, and so the trial proceeded. Uh, they took evidence. They examined the witnesses again. Um, Simpson and Qualls did present some witnesses at the first trial that they felt did more harm than good, and so they elected not to call those people to testify in the second trial. Um, right. And that was because Holly Lodge pretty effectively cross-examined them. And in addition, I believe two of their witnesses opened up the door to the prosecution putting on a rebuttal case at the Mm -hmm. conclusion of the defense case. So um, that had Benita Witherspoon not been on that first jury, Lee would have been convicted then.
2: You said he wouldn't have?
1: No, he would have. Had Benita Witherspoon not gotten herself on the jury, and that was clear, jury misconduct, there's no debate, and it is not right just because the juror in question did not want to convict him. Right. Juror misconduct is wrong regardless of whether it's someone who wants to, to, to convict or someone who wants to acquit. And it's kind of funny that had it been a juror who had a relationship with Holly Lodge, who knew the victim's family, who knew all the prosecution witnesses, who had outside information, who had gotten themselves on the jury to convict Lee, that person would be the most evil person on the face of the earth, and people would be crying for that person to be charged criminally. For what they did. What Benita Witherspoon did was no different. Okay. So, um, and, but it's kind of funny that now it's, you know, she was targeted and, and, uh, and the judge was punishing her for not wanting to convict Liddell Lee. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And I'm sure that's how Miss Witherspoon wants people to see it. But that's simply just not what happened, by any stretch of the no, imagination. Absolutely
2: that. not. Absolutely not. If she had a felony conviction, she should have never been on the uh, on the trial to begin with. Uh, right. and, uh, and mean, she should
1: have she should have disclosed that on the form, and they would have excused her,
2: and it wouldn't have been a big deal.
1: No, there might have been some questions as to how she could have a. How could she be registered to vote?
2: Right, and but she wouldn't be going back to jail.
1: Right. Well, she she only had to serve 10 days.
2: Right. But still, I'm sure um, she could have avoided that 10 days.
1: <laughs> correct. She could have avoided 10 that days. 10 days. Um, and, you know, her name is now forever linked to Liddell Lee. Because when you search right. Liddell Lee, Benita Witherspoon comes up.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, that's not something I'd want to be uh, connected to or, you know, for the simple fact being, you know, 10 days to me would seem like an eternity in jail. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm not even going to try to act cool and say it wouldn't. It would definitely bother me. But uh, there's one last thing under this second trial. We already talked about uh, the agreement that he made uh, to have Adams penalty phase. But let's talk about. He tried to raise conflicts again, and you know we mentioned it earlier. If I, at what point, or did he? Did the judge go? Okay, buddy, come on now. You know they just. Let's get real here. He, uh Lee
1: did file a pro se motion, Mm -hmm. and he was also trying to get Judge Piazza to recuse. And. What I can find, Judge Piazza did at some point on the record say that it was ridiculous. Right. Um, But another thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, again, the judge has a really difficult balancing act. He has to balance the rights of the accused to have effective assistance of counsel with the protection of the society and the system from a defendant who is just trying to gain some advantage or is just trying to delay the process and when you are appointed counsel it's not a matter of just saying I don't want to work with them, they need to go you have to have grounds for the judge to say you're right, they're not going to They're not going to help you. You need new attorneys. And something that gets lost in all this is that Lee never had any actual grounds for his own desire to run the show and the fact that his attorneys were not going to let him do that. But again, they were trying to protect Liddell Lee from Liddell Lee and i I truly feel bad for Mr. Simpson and Mr. Falls because yeah, they absolutely. did they did do everything that they could, and they did have a client what we call the client from hell
0: mhm uh,
1: yeah who who you just can't you can't make'em happy, and they don't listen and they don't want to cooperate, and they don't want to do the things that they need to do. To make this representation a successful one.
2: Right, right, absolutely. I mean, the way it sounds to him, he sounds like a crybaby, you know. I mean, I'd be stressed out and probably a little emotional if I'm on trial for capital murder, but, uh, you know, this dude just sounds like a completely self-entitled prick, so to speak.
1: (laughs) I think a little bit. You know, like I said, I think he thought he knew better than anybody else.
2: Right, right, exactly. Well, obviously, you know, we know what happens. Liddell Lee is found guilty and sentenced to death. Uh, What happens with the direct appeal?
1: On the direct appeal, uh, it was denied by the Arkansas State Supreme Court. Um, They didn't Mm -hmm. find any errors in his trial. Um, they didn't find any merit to any of the issues that were raised on direct appeal.
2: And his now, condition
1: and sentence were ultimately affirmed.
2: Now, I believe in death penalty cases, all these uh, appeals are are um, automatically triggered, correct? Whereas correct. non-death penalty, you have to ask for them? Correct.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, direct appeal is by right. And I think actually in most states, criminal convictions are appealed by right, regardless of the conviction or sentence. Okay. It may vary from state to state, but I think felony convictions are by right, not discretionary. Discretionary is where the appellate court can say, uh, we don't want to hear, we don't need to hear this. You're not raising any issues we haven't seen before. Uh, there aren't any issues among the trial courts of the circuit that say we need to look at this case so we're not going to hear it. And that's more or less, that's what the Supreme Court is. It is just right.
2: Okay. So let's then move on to Rule 37. Let's go ahead and give a uh, quick overview. What is a Rule 37 again?
1: Uh, A Rule 37 is a post-conviction procedure in Arkansas. Uh Uh, It is to challenge the constitutionality of your trial um, and trial errors. It is not a forum to relitigate guilt or innocence. It's not a forum to relitigate issues that were not successful on direct appeal. Uh huh. Um, unless those issues have some constitutional, either state or federal constitutional implications. For example, if you were unsuccessful on appeal of a uh, denial of a motion to suppress a confession or a motion to suppress evidence seized. In violation of the Fourth Amendment, you might mm-hmm. be able to go at that in Rule Thirty Seven from the constitutional aspect. Okay. Okay. All right. But again, it's not so, guilt or innocence, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to re-relitigate everything you, you claimed on direct appeal. And something else that a lot of people don't realize is in Rule Thirty Seven. The convicted person, who is the petitioner, has the Uh burden of proof, not the state. A lot of people believe that the state has the burden of proof of yep beyond a reasonable doubt throughout the process, Uh and that is simply not the case. There's no presumption of innocence in Rule 37. There is no... uh, and I don't think there's even a right to counsel. Right. Some states have it. Some states don't. Um, but, no, the judges in Rule 37 presume you're guilty because right. you've been convicted and your conviction is final after the mandate and your direct appeal issues.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I'm assuming the claim here uh on the first rule thirty seven is his counsel was ineffective or impaired? Yeah,
1: he made multiple claims
2: um,
1: and most of them dealt with ineffective assistance of counsel uh there was a there was an issue with the victim in, impact uh, testimony that was given during the penalty phase of the trial um Conflict of interest with the attorney failing to call witnesses, failing to rebut motives uh just a, a laundry list of of claims right uh, no against the attorney's it, effectiveness, yeah,
2: is this where they bring up or well, I'm not quite one hundred percent sure that it was a fact, but is this where they bring up the uh lawyer I believe that was drunk? at the time that he showed up and the well, judge, you know? During, yes, during
1: the during the state first rule 37 in the state court, during the hearings, the attorney Craig Lambert was somehow impaired. Right. And I believe it was on a couple of days. mm mm-hmm. um, But he still presented evidence and witnesses and I believe he's the one who who drafted the petition
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but again he was impaired and that shouldn't have happened Absolutely. now Why not? Yeah. ultimately the claims did not succeed not because he was impaired but because the evidence Presented at the hearing Did not Warrant Relief Um, And one of the issues Brought up was the alleged affair Between Judge Piazza And Melody LaRue Mm -hmm. And um, That is one of those Claims that is Somewhat deceiving Because The impression that is left is that the prosecutor in Liddell Lee's case was having an affair with Judge Piazza. Um, yeah. The person involved in the affair was a, a woman by the name of Melody LaRue. She was, I believe, a supervising attorney in a different section in the prosecutor's office. And Ms. LaRue and Judge Piazza had a a... a personal relationship going back several years Uh, they did bike rides together they did charity events together I don't think there was anything romantic they were just good friends but because of that they had a a, like a Chinese wall Judge Piazza did not hear any cases that Miss LaRue tried he didn't hear cases being tried by attorneys that she supervised she never practiced in his court. The attorney she supervised didn't practice in his court. So there was no basis for a case of uh, bias or prejudice based on that relationship, because he never he never decided a case that she was trying. Um, okay. She did okay. not work. She didn't work in the same section as Holly Lodge. She didn't supervise Holly Lodge. And Holly Lodge was the prosecutor on Liddell Lee's case. Um,
2: I mean, uh, the plaint about more the. Stalling. Pardon? So, basically, more stalling tactics.
1: Well, no, it's not more stalling. It's to give an appearance of impropriety to the proceedings by alleging that the judge was biased. Because he was having an affair with an attorney who worked in the same prosecutor's office that Lee's prosecutor worked in. But, you know, for all we know, Holly Lodge and Melanie LaRue could have been bitter enemies. And Judge Piazza could have had an equal disdain for Miss Lodge because of Miss LaRue's dislike of her. And so he could have not been willing to do Miss Lodge any favors. Lee's oh. claims were all speculative with that. And and most speculative was whether the affair, the romantic affair, was even going on at the time of Lee's trial. Judge Piazza testified that the, the romantic relationship did not begin until after Lee's trial ended. Piazza's wife right. testified that her husband told her the affair started before Lee's trial and was going on at the time of police trial. Um, the problem is that she did not know from her own knowledge when the affair started. She was merely testifying that that's what her husband told her. She wasn't okay. testifying that she saw them together, and she was mad, and she confronted them, and then she went to a divorce attorney, and divorce papers were filed within two weeks, and all of the mm-hmm. dates coincided with Lee's trial. That would have been strong so, evidence that the affair was going on during Lee's trial.
2: From so the wife. Let, let's say here, uh, this hasn't gotten into the habeas corpus, correct? This is still Rule Thirty Seven that we're talking about, correct? Correct. That's, okay, we're uh, still on
1: the first Rule Thirty Seven.
2: Okay, thoughts so. on so? With this being said, why? I'm assuming obviously, you know, now knowing the ultimate outcome of this, it didn't work out for him, but why wouldn't that have worked out for him if the dates coincide and everything?
1: Well, why didn't it think,
2: work out for him?
1: Well, no, awesome? the thing is, the thing is, the wife was not testifying to her personal knowledge. The wife was testifying okay. that her husband told her Okay. The affair started. Well, I was giving well, you a hypothetical. Her personal personal knowledge would be catching them together and having some way of remembering that it was during the time of Lee's trial.
2: Okay. I, that was a I hypothetical
1: on my part.
2: Okay, I apologize. I thought you were saying that the dates matched up and everything. I was no, about to say no. So let's take no. that hypothetical and place it into reality, so to speak. If that's what would have happened, where would we have gone from there? It, would Lee have gotten the new well, trial automatically?
1: It, no, it, that still would not be a basis for recusal or disclosure because just because Melody LaRue worked in the prosecutor's office does not mean that Judge Piazza is biased. Because he's in a right. relationship with her. Um, right. Lee never he's just offered... a son of a bitch. There was no connection between Melody LaRue and Lee's trial. Again, Holly Lodge was the prosecutor. And all right. of Lee's claims were just speculation. Well, he could have been wanting to help her friend advance in her career. But, you know, like I said, I can speculate, too, what if Melody LaRue and Holly Lodge aided each other? If I was true. dating a judge and my bitter enemy was in front of him on a case, I would say you better not do her any fucking favors. You better mm-hmm. make this as hard on her as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah, true.
1: You know? Yeah. true. So, um know, since Melody LaRue had no con- direct connection to the case, she was peripherally involved because she worked for the prosecutor's office. Mhm. Then, you know, there is no no basis to find that he was biased, prejudiced, should have recused or should have disclosed his relationship.
2: Let's move on to the federal habeas corpus. What happened here in the in the first federal
1: well he got he was um, he was one of the rare recipients of two rounds in both state and federal court um, he filed his federal habeas corpus claims in two thousand and one uh judge the late judge howard who was the uh, the one of the judges in the western district of Arkansas eastern district can't remember which one he was reviewing the record and and he found the issues with Craig Lambert at the hearing thirty-seven, and he felt that the impairment of Mr. Lambert presented Lee with an unexhausted potential ineffective assistance claim and so he ordered that the federal habeas be stayed and obeyed, which means just everything stops. Right. And that Lee be given the opportunity to return to state court and follow whatever procedure needed to be followed in order to have the impairment of Craig Lambert addressed. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed Judge Howard's order and so the mm-hmm. case went back to the state court. New the attorneys sake. were appointed.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And those attorneys were supposed to file status reports for Judge Howard to right. keep them apprised of the process in state court. And they were not diligent in doing it. Um, and so they finally, it was like 17 months, they filed a writ of uh, a request to Recall the Arkansas State Supreme Court's Mandate on the first Rule 37 Arkansas State Supreme Court Granted recalled the mandate and We was allowed to go back To state court And file a second Rule 37 That was Filed Most of the claims raised in it Were uh, The same as the original Rule 37 there may have been one or two additional claims. That the majority were the same.
2: Right, right. But that were back in
1: we're back in state court for second rule thirty seven.
2: Okay. And what was his claims in second rule thirty seven? What changed from number um, one to number two?
1: There were a few claims
2: uh
1: I believe that the affair between Piazza and LaRue was not really pursued. Um, they pursued the same conflict of interest. Uh, they pursued issues with the waiver of uh-huh. the conflict at the hearing where Lee accepted Adams. They pursued issues regarding failure to call witnesses and a an issue regarding the destruction of Now, that was on direct appeal, was the destruction of the blood. Which, basically, Uh the crime lab performed the testing. They didn't seek any advice or direction from the police or the prosecutor. And so, the police and prosecutor weren't, uh, didn't allow it to be destroyed in bad faith. Right. Basically. So, um, but, uh. On the 2nd so Rule of 37, that, the for not to. That, was, that was denied. Well, it was denied because none of the claims lacked merit. None of the claims had sufficient evidence to – and again, okay. the burden is on Lee to produce the evidence.
2: So Lee couldn't do it in state court the second time. What makes him – Get to go to federal court uh, One last time here For this well, second you know, last Habeas corpus right.
1: Federal habeas corpus is a part of the Process and it serves Kind of as a Check on the state Court's resolution of issues What the federal court Does is they look at the state Court's resolution And they determine Whether the state court correctly applied federal law or law and Mm -hmm. they determined whether the state court decisions were based on a reasonable determination of the facts. So each
2: rule 37 triggered a habeas corpus, I'm assuming is what we're getting at.
1: Well, it's usually you get one state post-conviction you get one habeas corpus. Right. You're supposed to raise all of the issues in the one proceeding. Mm-hmm. There are instances where maybe five years after your first Rule 37 is over, and new evidence comes for come is found, or a new witness comes forward, can try another sec another. post-conviction and you can try another federal habeas corpus but you have to get permission to do that and you have to present a case that has probable merit Mm -hmm. generally in order to do that or at least enough to show that if they go back and allow you to develop the evidence that there is a chance that you might succeed.
2: Okay. So all uh, four, Basically appeals is what these Rule thirty sevens and habeas corpuses boil down to. All four are denied, correct? Well they're
1: they're not um they're not appeals. They are collateral actions. They're actually civil in nature. Okay. Not criminal.
0: So and what? then
1: the decisions of the Rule thirty seven courts, the trial courts in Rule thirty seven were reviewed by the Arkansas State Supreme Court. Oh, okay. So when the federal court gets it, they've got the decision of the the trial court in Rule 37. They've got the decision of the Arkansas State Supreme Court in the first Rule 37 appeal. They've got the trial court decision in the second Rule 37 and the Arkansas State Supreme Court decision in the second Rule 37 appeal. hmm
0: uh-huh.
1: Unfortunately, so, we came up with claims that were not raised in either or, and that's called procedural defaults.
2: Okay. So that's how he got the second Rule 37 and the second habeas corpus?
1: Well, the the, the second habeas corpus was actually the, the first one was just uh, reopened. Okay. Because the, the first one that he filed was stayed. Which is just stopped. I, you know, I'm sure you've heard the term in a in a civil lawsuit where somebody files for bankruptcy and the proceedings are stayed. hmm That means they're stopped and nothing more happens until the pay okay. is lifted.
2: Okay. Okay. Just like a stay in an execution. Correct. That makes sense. So then they finally come to the decision in the second habeas corpus, obviously. They didn't rule in his favor. So at that point, now that the, he's exhausted that one, does he get an execution date? Because I know we move into the pre-execution phase. Does he get an right. execution date at that point? What Around what time are we looking at? When was the second federal habeas corpus decision? Let's
1: see. The second federal habeas corpus decision was in 2013, December. Um, Mm -hmm. He had tried to go back to state court uh, to raise additional claims related to his second habeas corpus uh, rule 37 counsel, but he wasn't Mm -hmm. successful. And then he appealed to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal, but they declined to review. They declined to grant him a certificate of appealability, which would enable him to file an appeal with Eighth Circuit. Uh, he appealed okay. that to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they declined uh, the writ. So mm-hmm. that was in 2015. Okay, okay. So now and we're in 2015. At that point, in 2015, Arkansas was still trying to revamp or redo their execution procedure.
2: Okay, so he didn't actually get a date at any point to this point, correct?
1: Correct. He, there was a okay. there in Arkansas when you're convicted and sentenced to death in a capital murder case, there is mm-hmm. a pro forma pronouncement of an execution date by the ju- by the trial judge.
2: Okay. And that's something familiar. Right. For those unfamiliar right. uh that may be familiar with uh Paradise Lost in the West Memphis Story. Is that what happened on that documentary where he says, okay, you're being remanded to the ADC and you're going to be executed on blah, 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 I believe it was 1996? May 5th, 5th, 1995, I believe. Oh, was it 95? Because
1: he was convicted in, in, I believe, March of 94. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that's a pro-forma pronouncement. However, if the Inmate does not file a notice of appeal. Not even though it's a it's an automatic review. Uh, uh-huh. If they don't um, if they don't file anything in support of that, it could take place it if they don't want to appeal. And Eccles okay. actually did try to drop his appeals at one point. Oh wow! Yeah. What?
2: Wow. So well, that's going
1: to be something um, interesting for us. Uh-huh. So, um, I, ne- I never knew that. It, that. was stayed because, and that was stayed because he did file an appeal, or he did, you know, pursue an appeal in the uh, Arkansas State Supreme Court. We
2: have the DNA testing request. This is, I'm assuming, he gets his execution date from Governor Hutchinson, or he gets Correct. his death warrant. Excuse me. I'm Governor Hutchinson, and all of a sudden he claimed that, you know, and I hate to use the word all of a sudden, but all of a sudden he claims he wants the DNA tested, correct?
1: Actually, you know, it was two months after the warrant was issued Mm -hmm. before the request for DNA testing was filed, and the request Mm -hmm. for DNA testing was filed along with motions to stay the execution date.
2: Okay. Okay. Now, what's the Atkins claim? Pardon? What is the Atkins
1: claim? The Atkins claim was that he suffered from a mental disease or defect or retardation or okay. something some something that would make him ineligible for execution because of mental illness or, or retardation or
2: I okay. I at, okay, so at. at that point, at that point, they're just trying to stay the execution. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, we're pretty much at this point up to the day of execution, and we don't have this on the outline, but walk me through what's going on the day of execution. And, you know, not necessarily Lee's case, but I do remember there being quite a few appeals throughout the day. And eventually they got to stay, I believe, from the federal all the way up until I believe it was 1130 or 1145 when they finally uh, started. And we'll get into the execution a little bit more here in a second. But what are all these appeals? Are, is that where they're coming in saying, hey, this guy is unfit for execution because he's mentally retarded in that execution Correct. claim? heard that act yeah, and they, they, they were they were also line
1: raising line. actual innocence and saying they needed DNA testing to prove it,
0: mm-hmm. and um
1: uh they they filed one or two stays, and I believe there was a state stay, but it was vacated. They were also challenging the lethal injection drugs right or every- the lethal injection I- protocol.
2: I believe every successful uh, execution challenged that. Now, question on that. Why was the first gentleman, and I forget his name, forgive me, but why was the first gentleman's execution stayed because of the lethal injection protocol, but they weren't all stayed?
1: I don't know that any of them were stayed because of the lethal injection protocol. As I recall, two of them were stayed... To it, uh, to evaluate them mentally
2: to see if they were fit for execution. Okay, I thought the first Stacey. one, the very first gentleman, was stayed for the protocol. I apologize. Yeah, Stacy Johnson was stayed because
1: the trial court either, I, I believe, the trial court denied his request for DNA testing without holding a hearing. And so he got a stay, and the case was sent back to the trial court to hold a hearing on the DNA test. And to give you an example, the hearings on that DNA testing, his execution date was set in April. That Mm -hmm. hearing didn't happen until November of 2017.
2: Oh, wow. So something has happened on... Mr. Johnson since then. Well, have um, they come to a decision they, on that? They didn't get wondering? that. One of my... But my my
1: point is, they didn't get the hearing set for June or July. Right. They pushed it all the way back to November. Okay. okay. Um, so wow. that, yeah, you know, that's a delaying tactic. You buy as many years
2: as you can. Right. Um, because, you know, eventually you're pretty confident it's going to end in the end, well, so to speak? Yeah.
1: Stacey Johnson has had DNA testing in it, and it inculpated him. Okay. It, it so, didn't yeah. exonerate him. And so it's unlikely past- that he's going to get a second round of DNA testing. But the okay. judge should have called a hearing. And that was something that was in the news. They said, well, Stacy Johnson and Liddell Lee, are, their cases are identical. But
3: right. they weren't
1: because Liddell Lee's judge held a hearing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And what happened so, was he, he set the hearing, and then Liddell Lee's attorneys came in and said, but judge, judge, we need more time. Mm-hmm. And the judge said, you filed this. You should have been ready when you filed it.
2: Absolutely. And
1: they should have been ready That's when different. they filed it. They should yeah, have absolutely. their words lined up like ducks in a row,
2: absolutely, especially when a man's lifes on the line that could potentially be innocent. You know what i'm saying that that right. sounds completely asinine to my, me and um the The ruling on the
1: DNA for Liddell Lee was basically in light of the eyewitness testimony the hair, the blood on the shoes. And the link to the $100 bill, DNA testing, even if it's not Deborah Reese's blood on his shoes, is not going to exonerate him. Uh, DNA test on the hair, even if it's not his, uh is not going to exonerate him.
2: So the night that Liddell was executed, we obviously said that there was two stays. What were those stays for? Why did they stay the execution and not allow it to go through? I believe originally it was supposed to happen about 8 o'clock that night. Why were those two stays? Right. Were they for the protocol, or I, what
0: were they for? I believe,
2: actually, I believe what ha- what they were doing was
1: it was going to be eight men over four nights. Right. So I believe Stacey Johnson and Liddell Lee were set for the first night. Right, right, And. Yeah. Stacey Johnson's was stayed to get that hearing on DNA testing request. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is, I believe, required under the statute. Liddell Lee went forward.
2: But Liddell's was stayed basically until about 11 o'clock that night. I was asking, what was the stay put in? I don't recall. I don't recall. He had
1: multiple he had multiple claims going in state and federal court and right. i don't recall which one um the uh, the appellate opinions in his case are so long that right. i have only made it through his second federal or, or his final federal habeas okay i i haven't okay. been able to make it through the eighth circuit or any of the of uh, the pre-execution Paperwork because the courts really did they did thoughtfully and completely reason things out and explain what evidence was presented and why the evidence was not sufficient. It wasn't just a matter of it's often it's often portrayed as a rubber stamp. Affirm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's not okay. what it is at all uh, i'm gonna I'm gonna post a couple of the opinions mm-hmm. on uh Lee's case just so that people okay. can get an idea of of what kind of work these judges and their clerks go through um, okay. and I don't think it's an easy job
2: for any of them right Whether well, we I like do remember. I do remember one thing they said is that uh, that night they said that they – whichever court, whether it be state or federal, may have stated to just get extra time just so they could read everything that was in front of them and make an informed decision. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And that is
1: probably – that is probably what happened, Um, although I believe uh, – I used to know the process pretty well. And I haven't uh-huh. uh, talked about it in so long. I believe that when you file something and you file a request for the uh-huh. judge, you file it with, initially signs off on the stay. Okay. And then they take the time to review everything, and and they decide whether the claim that you're presenting has merit. And if it does, then they Make the stay effective. You know, uh, they they leave the stay in effect, and they order that the case be remanded back to the district court, back to the appellate court, back to state court, wherever it needs to go. But okay. Again, in this case, Lee was Lee's attorneys were raising issues that had never been raised before. Um, that had never been presented any evidence or any testimony, testimony.
0: testimony.
1: And um we're trying to bootstrap those on to actual innocence and ineffective assistance of counsel. In the second right. uh rule thirty seven. Right. And right. that is not uh that was not a successful uh way to do it. And as far as the DNA testing, he could have requested DNA testing in 2009
2: while he was back in state
1: court on the second Rule 37. And And to say the attorneys attorneys knew nothing about DNA testing, they may not have known about the procedure, but I know at that time, somebody representing Lee reached out to the NAACP seeking their help. Right. And they were declined. Okay. Okay. And I know the well, Innocence Project was in was ex- in existence at that time. None yeah, of them ever reached were,
2: out to the Innocence Project. Yeah, they were well working with uh obviously the West Memphis 3 by that point probably their most right. famous thing that they were doing. But Lisa, and, we pretty much We pretty much know where uh, what happened with Liddell. Obviously, he was executed. Ended up being executed that night, and the sentence was carried out. We're in overtime right now. Uh, Let's go ahead and wrap things up with Liddell. Uh, What's some closing thoughts here you have on uh, the whole case involving Liddell? I, you know, I
1: think that the uh, representing it as a miscarriage of justice and uh, an example of how the justice system is racist or biased is not a very equitable thing. There are a lot of facts that aren't even considered when people are, are talking about Liddell Lee. You know, the, they allege conflicts with the attorneys when the only conflict was strife created by Liddell Lee. Had he been cooperative with his attorneys, the outcome might have been different.
2: Had he decided to appeal a lot of this stuff earlier, you know, it may have been different.
1: But
0: Lisa,
2: real quick, before we go, uh, obviously this Sunday we're going to have the uh, the special Aaron on Fox about OJ Simpson, and they're finally going to release the interview stating that O.J., you know, a lot of people believe that this is O.J. confessing finally to the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson. Uh, And Ronald Ronald Goldman. And Ronald Goldman. Next Tuesday, we're going to focus on the case of California versus O.J. Simpson. Go ahead and let us know what to expect and kind of preview what next Tuesday is going to be all about.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, basically, the the lost confession is going to be – probably a pretty explosive show. Um, and I can just talk about the case and go back in perspective to the crimes, the investigation, uh, the trial, how the jury possibly could have gotten to the verdict that they got to. And right. some of the it that went on during the trial with the jury.
0: Right.
1: So and right. and I'm I'm gonna be doing my little Google magic and seeing if I can line us up with some guests.
2: Sounds good. Sounds good, Lisa. Definitely stay tuned. We'll be uh follow us on Talk Radio forty nine, follow us on Twitter, follow us on everything on Facebook, and we'll be releasing that information as we get it as far as some potential guests. But Lisa, I think we're pretty much ready to go ahead and get on out of here. Is there anything else you got for us here tonight? No, I'm just going
1: to say thank you to everyone for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or at our blog, clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien can And you can join us next week for Episode 3, State of California versus O.J. Simpson. We're going to be talking about the crime, the evidence, the trial, and O.J. Simpson's lost confession, airing Sunday, May 11th on your local Fox station. Thank you, everyone.
2: Good night. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for Lisa O'Brien, I'm Michael Carnahan. We're going to go ahead and turn out the lights on this episode of Clear and Convincing.
0: Turn out the lights. The part is over. They say that all...